Welcome back to another episode of the Rosetti Stewart Podcast. He's Antonio Rosetti. I'm Justin Stewart. Coming from you from remote locations all across the region. If you follow our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, YouTube, wherever you get it, just search the Rosetti Stewart Podcast. And today we have a very special guest. You might know him because he played a few years for the Pirates. Was a veteran, a longtime veteran across multiple teams in Major League Baseball. Currently does some work with the Pirates for AT&T Sportsnet as well. None other than the Fort, Michael McHenry. How you doing today? It's a good intro. I appreciate that. Um, I'm sure. doing well. I got a rare off day. Tomorrow's a home opener, so I'll be there. We got an hour-long pregame show. Uh, it should be electric. Called for blackout, and they're going to follow through, it seems like. So it's going to be a special day. Andrew McCutcheon's back in a uh, Pirates uniform. We have A.J. Burnett throwing out the first pitch. Russell Martin catching it, and we're 10 years removed from that incredible wild card game against the Reds. So it's going to be a special day. I'm excited for the city and I'm really excited for my former teammates. Yeah, it's uh, definitely an exciting time to be a baseball fan right now, especially with how the Pirates just swept the Red Sox. Um, just like, just to kind of start, like, what do you see from this team, especially with, you know, the moves of adding Carlos Santana, G-Man Choi, Connor Joe, and some of the younger players like O'Neill Cruz now coming into his own and stuff like that. What do you see from this this year's team? I mean, like you said, I think just in general, the buzz around baseball after the World Baseball Classic and what that brought to the table, I think it gave us a platform that we haven't had in a long time, especially with COVID and everything else that's been happening over the last couple of years. So being able to showcase elite players across the world in a way that, you know, it was pure. And I think that just put the ball rolling and got everybody really excited going into the season. And the Pirates are such a young team. And they had, a, I think, five or six guys that ended up playing in that World Baseball Classic. And I think the fact that they had that experience mixed in with all the veterans you're talking about, they had a goal in spring training, and it wasn't what everybody else was saying. You know, Vegas has some of the worst odds ever. I think it was over under at 67 wins, which is absolutely terrible because they're going to be a better team. And if you put them on paper against the Cubs last year, just with the signings they had with no improvement across the board, they're pretty much the Cubs from last year who won, I believe, 72 or 74 games. So going into it, you know, everybody just says, oh, it's Pittsburgh. They're going to be the normal Pittsburgh low market no money, spending, blah, blah, blah. But these guys are talented. And the biggest thing is they have a culture of winning and care. And a lot of times you don't see that in a clubhouse. You don't see a brotherhood come together. You see resentment. You see maybe some jealousy. You see a lot of different things. And people always talk about competition. There is no competition in spring training. It really is competing against yourself, and that's it. But these guys took it to a whole nother level. They were literally, instead of competing, they were caring for one another. Say, hey, your success is important to me. It may be here, it may be somewhere else, but they're creating a family. And that's when Pittsburgh's baseball was at maybe its finest moments. It's in the 70s. We are family. And there, it seems like there's a maybe move to go back to that type of relationship, that type of camaraderie. And I hope it sticks because the talent is off the charts. We have one of the best players in all of baseball when it comes to talent. So I'm really excited to see where this goes. Hot start, playing well, exciting. I mean, we went in and swept Boston. I mean, come on. Just incredible stuff right now. Fair enough. Now, I do want to ask you, do you think it's fair to compare this team to 2011? You were on that team. And, you know, like you said, there was a mix of young talent on that roster too. You had some veterans on that roster. And, you know, you guys played well. You guys showed, like, serious improvement. Would you say it's a fair 
assessment to compare this year's team with that year's team? I think you got to go at least a year forward. Okay. At least. And, and, and what I mean is I would go between 12 and 13. And I think that's what makes this team super unpredictable of what they could be and how good they could possibly be. So you look at some of the veteran signings, maybe not, you know, Russell Martin, AJ Burnett, but I mean, Rich Hill's pretty close. McCutcheon may be better than all of them. And then you look at the talent at the big league level and then what's right underneath it. I mean, they just released today. We have five guys in the top 100 prospect list and they're pretty much all at the upper levels. None of them are below. So we've got double A, triple A guys literally nipping at these guys' heels. And that's when really good things happens because you never feel secure at the big league level. And usually that, like I said, creates resentment that creates maybe something that you're going to butt heads with this team. It didn't, I mean, hedges, it, uh, Austin hedges is our uh, main catcher right now in the major leagues. He's hurt. Hope he gets back quick, but we have maybe the best catching core in all of the minor leagues. And they're right on the cusp getting the big leagues just a year ago. We didn't have anybody. They didn't know who it was going to be, but a bunch of guys stepped up and that's, that's what it's all about. We're seeing the development. We're seeing all the stuff come together all at once that's something that wasn't there in 11 and it, it was coming a little bit in 12 and then 13, it really like caught fire and everybody had big years, but they still didn't know what type of year we were going to have in 13. This team is getting more and more predictable almost by the week because these guys are showing trends in a positive direction. If, if the collective group does that or more than don't, it could be really exciting because this team has so many athletes, and just underneath them, there's so many more. Yeah, I do want to like add on to that too. You mentioned the catching core, and Andy Rodriguez has ex- extreme pop on his bat, and Henry Davis, obviously the first overall pick, um, has, has had some injury issues, but you can see the potential there. Um, and also Jason DeLay has been doing a good job as well, but I do want to talk about maybe all three of those catchers, maybe Rodriguez or Davis more, but... Uh, what have you seen out of the out of these catchers that has really caught your eye? One, when I talk about that common core, that that that's who I was talking about. I, I paid a, a ton of attention being a former catcher and you know how that culture's you know coming together in spring training. And if you can see them start to really kind of grab each other, and Hedges probably led this race. He he literally helped everyone there get enhanced. And I, I think that's really, really important. I think that's part of the reason they gave him $5 million. And he's a guy that hasn't ever hit above 200 in the major league. So I think that was a great signing and the trickle down effect starting to happen. So now you can have some reliability if, if, and when Henry comes up and uh, Rodriguez come up, you know, that these guys are going to have someone to lean on, whether it's Heineman, whether it's delay or hedges, all three guys want to win and they want to help and they have a servant leadership mentality. So that's going to help two guys that can absolutely hit the baseball a ton, learn from guys that can absolutely receive block and throw. And that's going to be a really cool mold because the reality of where pirates are going to be at some point this year, they're going to carry three catchers. You know, there's, there's, there's no way Indy Rodriguez is not going to be here at some point. He's on the roster. He could have been here recently. They called up Heineman. They had to designate a guy they just picked up off waivers. So that means he's going to be here at some point. They want him to catch. They want him to learn. He needs to work on that. It's probably the only skill he's not really good at right now, and especially at a major league level. He'd literally walk right into the middle of our lineup if he was here. So 
he's close, Henry's close, and they'll carry maybe Hedges and Delay or maybe just one or the other. But these guys are going to be in the lineup because they can swing the bat, and you just hope and pray they can catch too. Because if you get those two dynamics together, you're thinking about Buster Posey. You're thinking about the guy from Baltimore that his name's not in my mind right now, but like Watchman. Yeah, exactly. You always want an elite hitter at elite defensive position because that that's when big things start to happen because you can build around that. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. So, like, we've talked about the offensive side of the ball so far. Just, like, talk to me about, like, what you're, what you're seeing from the pitching staff, you know, mainly uh, Rodens and Contreras, Mitch Keller, uh, guys that are, gonna, are trying to be here long term. Can you just talk to me about the what you've seen from those guys so far this year? Freedom. Absolute freedom. I don't think the the mind is talked about enough in the game. And, you know, last year, Ronsti Contreras was going to be a stud, I believe, at the beginning of the year. They start him in the bullpen and just dominates, right? And then he goes back down. They want to build his innings up. Well, how you articulate that probably doesn't matter because you're a human being. He just dominated big league hitters over a week and a half, two-week span in a way that most human beings don't, especially, you know, that early in their career. He did it when he came up in his first start. So then he goes down, tries to do too much, gets back, was a little bit off, maybe trying too hard. You saw the tension there, the anxiety come, and then they shut him down again, like, oh, we, we don't want you to throw too much. And right, wrong, or indifferent, that's not the argument with me, with the organization. It's just that he's a human being. So that kind of threw that year out the window. It's how is he going to respond in spring training this year? And he responded great. You know, I thought he did an incredible job pitching for the Dominican Republic. Him and Ortiz were just absolutely outstanding. They've got great, great stuff. And then he really is the guy for me that put the starting rotation kind of back in the whims. You know, we were fighting and clawing over the first four games. He came in that fifth and just like shut the door after two outs in the first where he really struggled to get those two. And then, you know, I think he sat down 13, 14 straight. So that was impressive. I think he's learning it himself. He's creating an identity. And if he holds on to it, the way he wants to be is going to happen, and that's going to be terrifying for the league because he wants to be great. And that's what you want out of every player, but it, it's not necessarily what they want. Some guys chase other things. This guy wants to be a great player and leave a legacy. Now, going to Mitch Keller, all of what I just said, times 50 is what Mitch Keller has gone through over the last four years. He put it together last year by first going to tread athletics and making sure that his body was moving correctly. He came to spring training through 100, 101 pretty much consistently. You know, sat, I think he sat 98.6, somewhere in that range. It's been a while, so I don't know if that number is exactly right, but he got crushed in April. Crushed. I mean, he just did, just did not correlate. It was great. It looked cool. It looked like a video game, but it was not correlating. So he went to the drawing board, talked to tread. They collaborated with Oscar, who's our pitching coach, and boom, all of a sudden, he has a sinker. And then he has a huge slider, which they're calling a sweeper now. It's just a, a slurve, and it's a better swing and miss pitch. So he ended the year, 21 starts, 321 ERA, top 10 in all of baseball, and he gets the open day starts come out. And you can see he's got a new pitch in that cutter, and he's trying to throw it too much, overexposes it, fights and claws to get out of that, didn't have a great start, but then comes to Boston, fixes it, quick adjustments and dominates him and delay looked amazing the other day. They just were pinging and pogging. They look like a doubles team playing for a final. It was, it was unreal. So when you're talking about the pitching, I'm excited, but 
probably the most exciting part was how good the bullpen was over the last six games because they just dominated 170-70 ERA as of right now, knock on wood. And uh, David Bednar, too, is obviously the guy holding down the bullpen, especially with him being in, you know, the World Baseball Classic Team USA. Uh, Tell me, like, a little bit about what you see out of him, and do you see him as, like, the closer of the future for this team? Because obviously he's the closer now as well. Yeah, I think think he should be the closer of the future. Uh, It's always tough. You have to look at both perspectives, right? So he's, he's a Yenzer. So he's from Pittsburgh. They, they call Pittsburghers Yenzer. So this guy's from here. He loves the pirates. He was, it was so humbling. One day he came up to me and said, Hey, I just wanted to introduce myself. You were one of my favorites. I was like, what? And before I got to that part, I was like, Oh, I'm old. I forgot. But yeah, it was just cool to hear that. And that's what type of fan he was. I wasn't a star player, but like he came up and he just, he loved my heart and hustle. That's what he said. He's like, I just love the way you play the game and you set a standard that I wanted to keep as well. And man, does he ever, he shows up every single day at the ballpark. He's got a smile on his face. He wants to win. He wants to bring that winning uh, mentality and culture to Pittsburgh. And I'm telling you right now, I, I hope and pray they sign him. I know it'll take less money. He'd be a great sign. And you know, the, 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 the thought for the front office is there's not really a good time to sign a reliever because it's so unpredictable with health and, you know, when they could fall off and the velocity could change, but I would sign him just because of the human being he is and what he does for the community and just hope and pray we get all the pitching out of it. Cause he'll be well worth it. I do want to ask you though, you, you were talking about like the, the catching position briefly with the, the three, three man guys. How hard, or let me rephrase that, what are the common misconceptions that maybe you hear uh, fans or just general people talk about, you know, whether catching is a difficult position or not? I think people just need to educate themselves a little bit more. You know, uh, we hear a lot about the automated strike zone. I, I could really go down a rabbit hole on this one, guys. So I'll let you guys pick which direction. But, I mean, the the one-knee stance, the the receiving of moving of the glove, automated strike zone, Um, what's more important, throwing, blocking, calling a game. There's just a lot of elements. I mean, you are the field facilitators, one coach and one mentor told me when you're a catcher. You're the extension of that coaching staff. So you're the only guy that's not in the field of play. So you're the closest to the, the dugouts and the coaches, right? You're directing the game by calling the game. And then you're you're supposed to see the situation and see everything out in front of you. The only person that is actually facing the field. So you have to be the guy that's the general. If you're not, you can't do it. If you're too quiet or if you can't lead by example, it doesn't matter what type of leadership skill you decide to use. It's just using it. And you have to be a servant first because you're going to get less swings in the cage. You're going to get less at bats in spring training. You're going to have to catch a ton of bullpens. And you're going to have to spend more time with the analytic department and in the video room than everyone else. Oh, yeah. You also have to spend a lot of time with the pitching coach. You have to learn technology. You have all of these different things that is technically going on. And then you have to go out and play and try to succeed so you have a good, healthy, and long career. So I'll let you guys decide you know, which direction to go. But it's the hardest position by far in baseball. So I, I think you have to really pick the right human being and decide what's most important to you as an organization to really focus on. And for me, you know, it really first, I want, I want a guy that's going to be a servant first. That's going to 
call a game based on a personality, not a philosophy and has a really good feel for the game. So that baseball IQ is probably the very first thing I want. And that's proof of Stallings delay. Both guys were non-relevant to get to the big leagues. They got to the big leagues and they're sticking and that you'll see that a lot with guys at that position because that ability to have some cerebral skills is huge. And then you build from there because guys like that will learn and continue to grow. Yeah, speaking of catchers, though, you mentioned, like, the tough parts of catching. Another tough part, too, is just taking some stingers, too, with, you know, foul tips and stuff like that. Uh, assuming it. What's that? <laughs> I said I loved it. <laughs> I, I just, like, um, I remember, like, because I played catcher, obviously not at the highest level, but I played in high school, and just there was just some times where you just get hit with it, and you're like, it just shocks you. It's like, it doesn't, like, hurt hurt, but, like, it definitely – Definitely is a shocker. Um, how, how is it, though, like, seeing, like, people – see, we've seen, like, Carlos Santana, for example, was a catcher, moves to first base. Uh, John Jason from catcher to first base. Um, what are some of, like, the mental hoops to, like, get past, I don't know, just not only stingers, but, you know, the worry about getting another concussion? Because we saw Francisco Cervelli was one of the players who – had those issues. What were some of like the mental hoops you, you went through with that? You play games with your mind. Um, <laughs> I think you are as tough as you want to be. So if, if you take a foul tip and you jump up and down once, maybe don't jump up and down again, no matter how bad it hurts, see how fast you can move forward. And I think that's the first thing you have to think about. And then with concussions, you know, back in the day, guys got hit all the time. Equipment wasn't as good. It's just the technology on the other side now. Guys get hit, and it's protection. We got to do this. You know, really, more information sometimes can really hurt us in this industry, and you have to use it on both ends. So, with Cervelli and and certain guys, you have to look at like what's the right mask to wear, right? When you get a concussion, if you don't know anything about concussions, it, it's all about your neck strength because it's the jarring of the brain inside your head that actually causes the concussion, not the blow. It's what happens after the blow. It's that jar. So this one-piece mask, if if not, you know, being able to handle with your neck, it actually makes you jar more. And it's causing more concussions. A lot of guys wear that one-piece mask. So now they're trying to make it make it to where it deflects better. I wore a two-piece mask. I never missed a game for a concussion. I know I had multiple in my career, but they were never bad enough to me where anyone noticed. But my wife. Um, so the. That's one thing. It's it's making the decision. It's like where's where where's the line I'm not willing to cross with health, and like where can I get to to say I'll be fine, and understanding it. I mean, I got to that by learning myself really really well, and I think that's really important. But Austin Head just took a foul tip recently. They took him out. He probably was fine. He didn't have huge concussion syndrome uh, symptoms, but they pulled him back. Said, hey, just take a couple days. We'll get you back in here and be fine. So that's always the hope. But yeah, you just want to continue to march forward. Whenever you get a stinger, whenever anything happens in the game, you just want to you know, march forward because that's a great skill for life if you think about it, right? You're going to get a lot of stingers in life. And if you just sat there and dwell on it, it's just going to hurt more. So if you move forward, maybe you stop thinking about it. And the best year of my career was because all I did was think about everybody else but myself because our pitching coach was non-relevant and our bullpen coach was non-relevant. And the advanced scout asked me to run the meetings. Um, so I had a lot on my plate and I caught, I think, eight or nine debuts that year in the major leagues. So it was a lot. 
but it was the best year offensively I ever had. And that's based around me serving and not focusing on what normally I have a little bit more anxiety with, with hitting because I didn't play every day. Now I'm focused on all these guys around me and good things were happening on the place that normally I have some anxiety or put too much pressure on myself. You mentioned like not always playing though. So like whenever you had like an off there too, how did you keep your mind right? And like, just kind of like, you know, relax, but also like, not like, you know, get too stressed out or, or whatever. Like, how did you like, just kind of like take it easy or was that just all you just like, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, how like were you still engaged, even though you might have not been playing that day? So two part question. So I'm going to answer it in two different ways. So to answer your first question, off days, I was terrible at taking, taking a day off, if that makes sense. I was terrible at it. I, I, I was constantly processing, constantly thinking, always wanted to get better, always wanted to move forward. I always wanted to reflect. So that was a, a huge regret of mine. I wish that I turned off more. When I did, I had some of the best experiences, you know, going to the Grand Canyon when I'm in the Folly, getting engaged when I'm in Hawaii. In the minor leagues, I did a great job of kind of getting away from the game and not letting it consume me, not letting it being my idol at times. That's really important. And it's something I tell kids. It's something I tell uh, guys that I work with that are in the major leagues all the way down to youth level because it's so important to be in the moment and then also let go of it for a while. Get away from it, right? It's 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 like it's like that nagging thing sometimes that you just got to walk away from, then reappreciate. And I'd also say go to a game and watch in Little League. Remember the fun of this game because it becomes a business. And once it becomes a business, it's only a matter of time before you lose that love you had when you were a little kid. And you see that happen time and time again, and it's really sad. And that's one reason I retired. I felt like I was going to lose the love of the game if I kept playing because I couldn't stand a lot of the things that were happening behind the scenes and the way people were treated. So I got out of it, but stayed in it and it was the right move. It was completely God based, but now moving on to that second question, being engaged is a choice as a bench player. So my first couple of years, I had an okay year. I had a pretty, a really good year offensively. And then I got hurt in 13 and what I realized after 13 was don't pretend or don't think because someone tells you, you you're going to be a starter. You're going to come in and compete. This is what you need to do. Blah, blah, blah. I just said, forget it. I'm going to be the best backup I can possibly be. I'm going to pretend like I'm going to play every fifth day. So that, that, that was always the hardest thing. I'm going to pretend like I'm going to pitch hit against Chapman every single time he walks up there. So I put myself in a really extreme mindset going into rehab for my knee, which was six months and how I was going to prepare for those moments. And I went out and hit 315. I was the best offensive catcher um, outside of Buster Posey by it. My bats were obviously a lot smaller. But that was a huge year for me in 2014, but it was a choice and I made it way before it happened. And it gave me so much peace. So that was my way of going about it. A lot of people are going to go about it different, but it's, it's through experience and failure and all those things that I came to that. It wasn't like, oh, let me just do this. And nobody wants to say I'm going to be a backup. Nobody wants to say I'm going to be the other catcher, right? But I knew if I could accomplish that, playing five days in a row, every single time it happened in my career, I had success. Eight days, success. So I was like, okay, so if I play more, good things are happening. 
but let's not plan on that. Let's not hope on that. Let's throw the expectations out the window. Let's expect what keeps coming and not play games with my head. Even if they want to, I don't have to do it. So I made the choice and said, this is how I got to do it. So I prepared every single day. Like I was playing, like he was like the starter was going to have a bump, a Nick or anything, because that's what you have to be ready for. I spent all the time in the world. I could with every single pitcher and every single coach to learn and grow. And it's put me in a position to be an analyst. So I used everything I could at my disposal to be extension of that coaching staff and be the best possible teammate serving, leading and caring for every guy around me. And then when it was my day, it was win, whatever it takes to win today. David Ross said that, and I never let it leave my mind. I want to win today. And I won more often than I didn't. So I feel like that was a success. I have a lot of regrets in my career, but one of them is not being, isn't doing everything I could. And I left everything I had. I just didn't have the information maybe to be exactly who I wanted to be. Yeah. And I do want to like go on top of that too. Uh, So if you think about it, like, have you ever had a moment where like, obviously you could be really locked in. But if you ever had a moment where you kind of just step back, maybe you were catching, maybe it was right before you were, uh, you know, on the batter's box, uh, and then you just look out in the crowd and say, wow, like I made it to the show. Have you ever just like had a moment like that when you were playing? Yes and no. The little moments, no. Um, like the first time I got behind the plate at PNC in the backdrop, I didn't take that in the way I should. I didn't appreciate that anywhere close to the way I should until I got in the broadcast booth, which is really upsetting to me. Actually, I would say when I came back as a visitor is probably when it really hit me. So like the little things and day to day, I should have done so much better. I should have soaked in the moments. I, I talk about all the time is I, I, I want you to maximize each moment you can, because you're going to at some point not have those moments, especially with the people you love. So maximize the moments. So I wish I would have, but there's certain times in my career, usually after big moments or big situations, that I could literally put my brain there right now and I'll start crying. Like my first home run in Pittsburgh is a great example. We, we were climbing to the top of uh, first place. I think this actually put us in first place. I had a, uh, a home run against Carlos Mamal uh, a month after I got traded the, to the Pirates, which I usually hit you know, at least one to five home runs a month, my entire career dating back to the minor league. So I was like, man, am I ever going to hit a homer in the major leagues? And I did against one of the best closers at the time. It was a 10 pitch at bat and 36,000 people went absolutely bonkers. I got a standing ovation floated around the bases and I got a cream cream or shaving cream pie at the end, got interviewed. It was, it was very humbling especially for a guy that, you know, maybe had two and a half, three months in the big leagues at the time. So yeah, there's moments you you think of and just like, wow, that was epic. That was just special. And and you want to relieve it, relive it as much as you can. Cause that moment I want to maximize and never forget. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. I wasn't asked though. I don't think we really touched the point though, but how did you get the nickname of the Ford? So I took a lot of pride in blocking. Um, I had a coach that was very old school when I went to college and I had a great volunteer assistant who's now the hitting coach for the Buccos, Andy Haynes. And that was the main focus. I had a 
bazooka at the time. So throwing wasn't an issue receiving blocking. I, you know, in high school, I had a bunch of guys that were really, really good with their control. And then I got to college and maybe not as much, but I always loved it, but they took it to a whole nother level by creating consequences. If it got by me and that includes fastballs, it includes balls that I had to jump for. So I was that guy that would throw a hand would throw his arm. I would dive anything to keep the ball in front of me. I thought it was incredibly important. And it honestly gained me a lot of cred with every pitching staff I was with first, just the name, but then also like, you know, putting it to action. So I'm super stoked. I got that name because it could have been terrible, right? We've heard a lot of bad nicknames. That's a really cool nickname. And I'm really appreciative of Greg Brown and, and Bob walk that it stuck. So yeah, I, I'm referred to as the fort most of the time in and around the Pittsburgh area and even, you know, all the way out to Colorado when I went there for a couple of years. So that's, that's a special thing. And the coolest part of it guys is when we played Baltimore and I was a rookie, they took me to Fort McHenry where the star spangled banner was written. And I get to raise the flag that day. How cool of an honor is that? No, that's, that's really right. Cool. So that's like, the kind of yeah, like you talk about those moments that you should have taken in a lot more. Man, that's one I should have taken in a lot more. And I'm going to have to go back to Baltimore and do that again because, yeah, I mean, that's special, right? Like one letter difference to last name. So Fort McHenry with a K is me. Fort McHenry, you know, with an H is the reason we have a Star Spangled Banner. And we, we are the United States. So pretty cool. That is That is incredible to like to go from, you know, and, like, if I was looking, like, you were the first player from your high school to ever make the major leagues. And then after you, Nikki Delmonico followed, Nixon Zell followed. Oh, they're good. Uh, how did it? <laughs> I mean, I do yeah, a program that went like this, man, they're special. So, sorry, I had to go off on a tangent. My cousin was talking trash to me because his high school just beat Farragut. And I said, hey, listen, it's happened before, but the mountaintop takes a while to walk to the top and it only matters at the end. Mm-hmm. Right. You right? got them there. Guys, don't, don't ever forget that because how many times we'd play them in sub state and we'd be going to regionals and they were going home is every time, every time over the last two decades. So I just always remind him like, Hey, nobody remembers the game that was played in district on a Wednesday night and you happen to win. They remember you winning the district and dogpiling. They remember you running the regional and dogpiling. So always remind them, like, it pays to be a winner. <laughs> yeah, it's not. And plus, like, you get to the mountaintop, but you got to stay there. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's lonely. It gets lonely. I'm telling you right now. That's why pe- most people don't stay there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I do want to ask, like, how does it feel to be, like, kind of the, I want to say the trendsetter in- into this? Well, obviously, like, there was probably players before, but you were the first one to make the majors out of that high school program. How did it feel to kind of be that first one and to maybe be the trendsetter and turn and just like help that program out? Humbling, honored. And I would say the biggest thing is it wasn't me. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tommy Farr, the coach there, revolutionized that entire program because of the human being he is. Uh, He's like a father figure. We're still really close. Uh, If you look up who Tommy Farr is, Three times national coach of the year, coach Spencer Strider. Some of the names he's coached um, is is remarkable. He has a couple gold medals. He has he's got to be close to twenty state championships. 
but I know he's at least been to the state uh, championship, you know, over 20 times. Now he's at a different school. He went to a small school that never won state. They've been ranked nationally now. So when you think about anything I could have done, it would have never happened without his servant leadership, his shining light of his Christian faith, which was remarkable. He didn't put anybody's face. He just lived it, walked it, did it. And he's a guy that I look up to and I, I see a lot of Jesus in and I see a lot of what I want to be as I, as I move forward in my life. Amen. I, I do want to like add on to that too. You mentioned the faith. How, how important is faith for you in your walk in life right now? Oh, it's great. I suck at it, um, but it, it's great. And I think everybody sucks at it, right? Cause we, we have a standard that's perfect and you know, everything's just kind of down from there. So mm-hmm. it's huge, man. Like I've had five knee surgeries I've lost family members. One of the hardest days of my life is when I watched my, my soon to be wife three months later, we were getting married, watch her dad pass away. And at that moment we had to take care of every single thing, every bill, the funeral, everything. Um, it was very, very hard watching someone you love grieve. Um, you can take it on yourself a lot of times, but watching the person that you care about more than anything, that was really, really hard. So yeah, I don't think I get through almost anything in my life especially when it's compounded without faith. And there's times where I put faith in the wrong things, especially baseball. And you have to have that perspective in life and figure out, okay, how do I make sure that I know this is happening? When this is happening, what's the trend to get there? And then try to combat it. Most people don't want to have a prevention of problems. They want to react. And reacting doesn't usually work very well. It usually ends up worse. You know, it's kind of like the Tasmanian devil, you know, he gets set off and he starts spinning really, really fast and nothing good happens after that. I want to be the road runner beep, beep, and always win, you know, but you have to be prepared. And sometimes you have to look at things you don't want to. And that really comes down to understanding yourself, you know, through something that's much bigger than yourself and then kind of trickling down. And that's really helped me as I've gotten older. And I feel like I'm coming into my best self at 38. And I wish I would have done it at 18. But that's why I have a really strong passion and why I do a lot of consulting, advising, and speaking to people that are younger than me and people that are older than me to give them my perspective, give them the understanding that I learned through, whether it's good, bad, or ugly, I'll tell you you know, how it is. I'm very truthful. I'm very out there and transparent. So I want to give back. And that's really good for me too, in a selfish way. Well, just following up on that, though, so, like, how has – you've kind of touched upon it, though, but how has faith, like, helped you through, like, those tough times, whether it was, like, injuries, you know, going through a slump, maybe the team's not doing as well as you'd hope. Like, how how does faith in that aspect uh, help you uh, push through? Well, guys, you you have a choice, right? When something bad happens, you can say, oh, poor pitiful me, why'd this happen? Or you can say – Ooh, something bad happened. That means something good's coming afterwards. And you can use it for your growth, right? There's a yin and yang in this world, right? Good and evil. There's not a human being on the planet that's not going to suffer. That's one thing that's promised in our life outside of death, right? The ultimate suffering is death. So we need to look at it in the face and say, okay, that means I need to live my life, right? I always tell people all the time, I, I hate, I have a 401k, I hate it. I want to live my life. I don't want to live to retire. I never want to retire. When I retire, I I die. I want to go just like Jesus did all the way to the cross. 
And I think we get so locked in on the ebb and flows of life and what, you know, life's supposed to look like or, you know, the atypical life, the nine to five, this, 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 it's like, okay, what if that goes bad? What if this goes wrong? What if life just hits? Cause it's going to, how are you going to react? Well, if you're prepared for you you've already been willing to look at it, read stories about it and learn from people that you know are smarter than you have been through things. All of a sudden you're prepared for something that may come, may not come, but either way you gained a perspective and gained wisdom from someone else without having to react to it in the moment. So that faith of saying, okay, I, I know everything that happens, God allows, but it has to be used for his glory. The second part I have a really hard time with. First part, I've accepted. God allows it. He didn't deem it. He didn't say evil need to be in this world, right? We did, but he allows it. But if you look at the Bible, and you read every great story, every great story has a tragic moment and a climb to the top. So remember, when you fall to the pits and you feel at your lowest, the greatest thing is this far away most of the time. But instead of looking at it that way, we look at it as like, I'm not okay. Right? That's the mental health stigma. And I say this, that's fine, but it's not okay to stay there. Because what's right around the corner could be the greatest gift you never knew existed. And this tragedy could be the blessing that you've been looking for to get you forward. Because how many times have we heard, I just had to hit rock bottom? No, you don't. That's just when you decided to take the choice, say, I'm good. I'm ready. Read David Goggins' story. It's remarkable. Three times, buds finally passed. He had shin splints. Oh, wait, no. He had fractures in his shins. Excuse me. Fractures. They healed themselves. So you put your mind to something and you want to make that choice, you can. But you have to look at yourself in the mirror and say, am I lying to myself? Am I telling myself the truth? And where is my faith lying? In myself, in God, in this world, in money, in my family? And if you can't answer those questions, that's probably the best place to start. Then move from there. Yeah, and thank you so much for sharing like kind of your testimony and you know you coming to that and I just want to add to that you know David you know hit rock bottom as well um, another person Paul Saul turn Paul gets knocked off his horse goes blind for three days but he listened to God got back up and preached the gospel right and remember what he was doing prior to that by the way persecuting Christians right he was mm-hmm. the most hated man right. Because that's what he did, right? What do you do for a living? Well, I kill people that believe in you, big guy. Yeah. And then he's maybe the most famous apostle, right? It's crazy. Mm -hmm. And it didn't matter. He hit rock bottom, but he was able, he listened to God and he was forgiven for what he did. And he ended up spreading the word. And he was like a, he was like a branch, spread his leaves to other people. So it's great to see. Amen. Amen. Well said. Mm-hmm. Hey, let me let me tell you something that's a cool way to look at it. So, the only way you can grow your branches and spread the fruit of that is by having deep roots. Never forget that, because you have mm-hmm. to grow this way before you can go this way. But our world tells us to go this way and never grow this way. Make sense? Like that's why social media is so cool for people because it's like, oh, 
you know, I'm scrolling, but you're really staying surface, right? You're never getting any depth because you're constantly going boom, boom, boom. And that's, that's what we need to maybe take a step back from grow depth. And that depth will produce far greater fruit that'll go far and wide. And that depth starts on the inside and the seed that can be planted is from God's word. So it all comes from there. Circle. Amen. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Amen. I'm happy we got into this topic. It's great yeah, to no see doubt. that like faith can hit people in different ways. And it's great to hear that you've had that you have this faith and it's awesome to see it. Yeah. And it's never easy, right? I mean, Jesus no. persecuted, died on the cross for us and always say, Put yourself in that shoes. What would you do that for? And usually the room goes silent because that's hard to think. Well, he did it for us. And I, I never want to forget that. And sometimes it's really hard for me to even like talk about it. I get emotional because like I can't imagine anybody on this planet picking up all I have in my baggage and say, I got you. You're good. You just, just hang out by the pool or something. I got it. Your time will come. It's crazy. Incredible, absolutely incredible. Yeah, I mean, I don't. I, that's a good conversation. I, I don't want to pivot from it. We can like, go back to it though. But I did want to ask you about the social media uh, components, of everything. So I know when you got called up, social media isn't the monster that's become like nowadays. But like, Ooh, I had a BlackBerry, <laughs> dude. I had a BlackBerry. Black- <laughs> you even know what a BlackBerry is? I, I've heard of a BlackBerry. I've never You've heard of a BlackBerry. Go, go to a Goodwill and go find me a BlackBerry. Be a dollar, <laughs> right? It's like it's like one hundred and fifty. I would not like what what's capable today. You would crack up seeing a BlackBerry. It looks like yeah. <laughs> it's just funny, man. It's like, <laughs> how much has changed, man. I, uh, I sound like a grandpa. This is great. Okay, here we go. No, you're good. You're good. So <laughs> I, I was gonna ask you social media. So I, I don't know how you dealt with like criticism, you know, by media or just like anyone like online. Like for you personally, I, I'm not sure if you were an active Twitter social media user during your playing days but just like i know you see the comments like nowadays though but like just how do you like navigate that and just you know kind of not like take all that in because it can be overwhelming and uh, you know i understand like people look online so you can't take everything they say seriously but but at the same time like how do you how does that affect you and how do you like deal with that the man in the reader is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how strong the man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The critic belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, uh, who errs, who comes short again and again, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement and who at the worst if he fails at least fails while daring greatly so that is his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither nor victory nor defeat theodore roosevelt if you haven't heard that or if you have i'd read it nine thousand times a day if i could but not Not my problem, right? Here's the reality. At one point in my career, I realized I was a lightning bolt strike in the face. So the odds of me making it to the major leagues was like getting struck 
by lightning bolt this year. Now look up the odds of you getting struck by a lightning bolt. It's 0.016. That's how odd it is for me to play one day in the major leagues. So having perspective is the greatest gift you can always have against critics. I didn't know that until four weeks ago, which is a problem. So every kid I've met, I tell them, this is how hard it is, but this is how cool it is. So I think that's the first thing. And then the, the next thing is, I had a coach tell me this one time, on your best days, turn on the radio. On the worst days, turn on your favorite song. Pretty cool, right? Mm-hmm. That goes with newspapers, that goes with social media. If you play terrible, don't turn on, don't, don't look at your phone. Pick up the Bible. Listen yeah. to great music. You had a great day? Read everything. Da, 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 da. Affirmation, affirmation. I'm good. <laughs> right? Because I was bad about that. Like I I never I I had a, such a high standard. It was it was a negative thing for me. So I should have spent more time digging myself. I should have. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't have to tell anybody that, but that's that's what I should have been doing behind the scenes. Like, ooh man, I'm good. Look at that swing. Ooh. What do you need to know? But on my way home, turn on the radio. Listen to you. Talk about that homer you hit. That's important. We we run away from that. We 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 humble ourselves, which is great. Do that everywhere. But in the dark, your character needs to take it, eat it. Num num num. I do. You you did say one thing that you said good swings, and I do want to go back to your playing career real quick because I remember one great swing I saw from you, and it was against the Royals Chapman. It was a big at bat. You know the game winning RBI double. Can you just tell me a little bit about? That moment was that like kind of like your welcome to the show moment, like where you made that hit. Like obviously Marmol was there too, but was that like one of your highlight moments getting that hit off Chapman? It was, but once again, I think I, I didn't maximize it. I didn't think through it. I didn't even know that um, at the time that he had a, a save streak on the line and a run streak, so he hadn't given up a run in a certain amount of time. And he was on pace to do something. I I can't remember the exact details, but yeah, I mean that's when I should have dead, gone home and been like, double in the gap, double in the gap, double in the gap. Ooh, what are they saying about it? Nice and and get that affirmation because he was the best, and I was good at walking into those situations, wanting those situations. I stayed in the moment for for that, and I, and I felt like I believed in myself. Almost every time, nobody believes in themselves all the time, but I, I would trick it, trick my brain if I had to. But I do regret, once again, that I didn't affirm it over and over again on those big moments. You know, when you hit a homer off Papelbon, when you hit a homer off Carlos Mimal or Yohan Santana, you got to think through that. Like, huh, two, two starts later, he threw a, almost a perfect game or a no hitter. Like, I took him deep right here. Just thinking it, right? And that's going to build that confidence. Best players and the best business people I've ever met have a different type of swagger. Sometimes it's really loud out in front, but the greatest like men I've met and women have it inside. They walk to a beat of their own calling in a sense, but not in a way that they don't want to bring people along because the greatest leaders are always going to try to make more great leaders. I do want to ask though. So you, you kind of highlighted it earlier when Tony asked you about some of the players you've played with. Just like in the minor leagues and maybe even the major leagues, though, like who is the, the guy you saw 
pound for pound, like not not post playing career days, but like while you were playing, like talent wise, like all the physical gifts you could think of, who was the best guy you've ever played alongside on a team, in the minors or majors? Ooh, that's a good question. So all around, you're saying? Yes. Starring Marte. That, that's that's a good pick. It's a very good choice. That's it. Done. Yeah. He he's Mike Trout, but never became Mike Trout. He has. If you look, like I remember seeing something on MLB Network back in like 2013, 14, and it compared his like throwing throwing velocity, his speed. He's his bat speed, it, it's they're all a little bit higher than Trout's. Like it's not even like same. They're actually like a little above it, and yeah. it just it's crazy. It's crazy. Isn't that crazy to think about? It is. All We're the talking. all the analytical numbers yeah. are better, and then it's like, but wait a minute, that's maybe the best player of the last generation, right? Of our generation, at least mine. Um, that's crazy to think, huh? So that's why I had to think about it, and I was like, yep, Starling. Yeah, no, but yeah, what I was saying though, like that, that's funny you mentioned that because as soon as you said Starling Marte, it, it brought me back to a conversation I, ha- I had with his father, uh, Tony's dad, and we were talking about, oh, well, he he has all the tools to be the best player in baseball, and like silly me, I, I just looked at him kind of like side eyes, like yeah, okay, dude, but Tony mentioned the, the MLB Network thing in the graphic, and like you know, it makes a lot of sense now that like you said, you know, he says it, you know, Tony said it too, so you know, I, I just thought that was interesting you said that. Um, was there was there anything with Sterling Marte you saw like maybe in the minors that like just caught your eye or, or was it just something you just saw with him like his aura and his personality? Well, the easiest way to put it is the day he showed up to the major leagues. I didn't play with him in the minor leagues. Okay, he, he goes, "I'm going to swing the first pitch, hit a home run, puppy." He's one of the first pitch. He had a home run, puppy. He gone. Right. I mean, I'm Dallas Keuchel. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's how good he was. And he could have been a lot better, but he's going to be great. Like he's going to look up and say, man, I had a great career and there's nothing wrong with that either. But I think he could have been somebody that's in that top 20 all time list. Fair enough. Fair enough. I do want to follow up on that question though. So we, uh, we talked about the world baseball classic early on, you know, baseball over the past, you know, decade or so, it's really started to get populated with guys that are not born in the U.S. and it's just really integrated. It's become a little bit more diverse. Just like speaking on your experience, um, what are like what's it like playing with guys that aren't from the U.S. and like just like seeing like the, the way they handle their business and just interacting with them? Like, what's that? What's that like in a clubhouse? Five years from now, you'll be asking that question to all the non-U.S. born players. Bet me. Right, bet right. me. Uh, I think, I think it's going to be the biggest hodgepodge in all sports. As long as they get into rural America and the inner cities the way they need to, and it's going to be awesome. That's why it's America's pastime, right? Um, I I don't see just genetically, you know, unless they keep going over into Europe, that the NBA is going to you know, all of a sudden bring over kids from Brazil. You know, you're not going to run them away from soccer. You're not going to run, you know, in the Dominican Republic, Venezuela, all those, all those countries, they play soccer or baseball, you know, and basketball, football. I mean, could you imagine any of those guys walking off the soccer field to go 
put on pads and get crushed, right? Or making the guys that played rugby, it has happened, you know, once or twice in the NFL, but making them put on pads and go in the NFL. No, but there's a lot of guys from Australia that play baseball and they played in the major league. So I think it's going to be literally a world series one day. Uh, I believe that. I think the world baseball classic is going to be the new standard where there's going to be divisions, United States, Dominican Republic, maybe it's East world S West world. I have no idea, but that's the hope. That's the dream. And I think we're going to see it get more and more of a melting pot. It's going to look like the United States, you know, everybody's different. Everybody's from different backgrounds. There's, I think about it like dogs. It's like a bunch of mixed breeds playing against each other, right? Like you just don't know where they're from, how they got here, and who cares, right? It's just a bunch of great players. But yeah, learning the culture for me was fun. I played in the Dominican Republic. It made me appreciate so much how hard it's got to be for them when they come over and why they stick so much together. And even before I went there, I spent a lot of time with – uh, some of the Latin players to get to know them, to, to, to understand them. Um, and I loved it. I lived with a couple of them um, a couple of times. They didn't speak very good English, but it, it helped me grow and I learned them. They were both pitchers. So yeah, like, I think it's great. I think it's great for the game. I think it's great for anybody to learn someone else's culture, someone, someone else's background. Cause we all have a story. We don't know until, you know, so I, I love it. I love that baseball is going that direction. I, I can't wait to get to know, uh, Choi, I can't wait to get to know uh, Bay. I can't wait to get to know Ono Cruz better. Um, Andrew McCutcheon is one of my really good friends. So it's like getting to know everybody from every different background. I mean, Andrew grew up uh, in a very poor part of Florida, and a lot of people don't know. So like, you know, he he's literally changed his family for generations, and it's stories like that that's just remarkable. So yeah, I think the story is the coolest part. Culture maybe be second. I do want to – I'll let you go, Tony, after this. I want to ask this to like, follow-up, though. Um, just, like, you kind of touched upon it also. So, as far as, like, growing the game of baseball, like, internationally, I, thought they, I think they've done a really solid job. And we saw, like, the ratings for the World Baseball Classic was through the roof. But as far as, They're like – They're doing an okay job. They're doing an okay I, – I don't want you to give them too much credit. They can do way better. No, no, I, I was, I was going to follow up with that. I, I think they've okay, done a good, solid good. job. But um, I, I do think they can do better, like, like you said, though. But especially like in the, in the U.S., I think you know there's certain like populations and areas you know within the uh, U.S. You know there's for a lot of different reasons and factors. I understand, but my question to you is like how how can we and maybe more so the U.S. and globally for that matter, how can we continue to like promote the game and like, get maybe more people involved? Transparency, 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 transparency. Period. Like I, I could go into the weeds on that, but like, um, do you guys know anything about the Dominican uh, Republic uh, complexes they build down there? Yeah, a little bit. Okay, little. now now a little bit, right? Do you know any about anything about the complexes they build in the inner cities in the United States or in the rural parts of America? Don't worry, I'll wait. Right, problem, huge problem. Right. So you have to ask yourself why got to go into some depth to figure out what's the reason they did that cheaper, easier, no restrictions, no fight. Like I could say a lot of different things. 
And I don't know everything. I don't know how hard it would be. And I'm absolutely ecstatic what they're doing in Dominican Republic, what they're doing in Venezuela, what they're doing in different parts of the world. Like, don't get me wrong. But we live here too. So I think the standard should be at least even. Because I would have loved to, I would have loved to, as a baseball dude, be invited to go to school, have three meals a day, and work on baseball six hours a day from 16 to 19 when I came to the United States. So you tell me they don't have a huge lead, a giant race? Come on, man. Come on. Right? And that has nothing to do with anything other than, like, that's how it's set up right now. And that's why I don't know what percentage of guys are from Latin America. And, you know, they also have a huge advantage because they are trying to provide for everyone in their family. Most of them come from, you know, a tough background or a poor background, and they know that's how they, you know, change their life. I mean, think about all the Cuban players that come over. I can name one that I know of that came over and really struggled, right? They come over and fight, claw, scream. Right. Because, and they enjoy every second of it because they know what it's like to not have freedom. They know what it's like to not have food. They know what it's like to have it all taken away and to run away from the things they love more than anything in the world and their family to be the change that needs to happen to change, not just their life, but their family's life forever and may never see them. How many guys I played with that never saw their family again? It's crazy, right? My bullpen coach still can't go back to Cuba because he defected. And that's sad. N- nicest mm-hmm. human being I've ever met in my life, him, him and his wife. And he never saw his family again. Never talked to him again. And that's that's what we need to remember is like there's a perspective. So like I only know so much, but I know just about as bad horror stories in the United States with kids from the inner city that I've worked with, with kids from rural America that – you know, have it tough and nobody ever knows about it. And it's like, how do we, how do we start touching there in all sports? How do we give them a chance? Cause it ain't cheap to play football. It ain't cheap to play baseball it Ain't cheap to play golf, hockey, soccer. It's so expensive. So just setting them up to win. And then it's their choice. It's their responsibility, but they have to be empowered. Some with responsibility to do that. Good. Get, Amen. You know, Amen. Like, dig into it a little bit. Like, I don't know exactly, but I know they're trying. I know they're really trying to make a huge push in youth America. Um, a lot of different people are, but there's something that's holding it up. There's something that's, you know, making it harder than it should be because like, I mean, just go right in the middle of downtown Chicago, build a baseball field, a complex and help, right? Mm-hmm. They're struggling. Help them. You know, I'm sure a lot of kids would rather get paid to, you know, show up, do some serving and hit some baseballs and sell drugs, you know, but they got to do something to, to live. You can't knock any of it. You just have to understand and meet people where they're at. I know people in rural America that would love to stop house hopping. Like my mom who grew up in foster care, you know, but she gave me a better life. She made a choice and that's not easy to do. She's an oddity. A lot of people don't get out because it's not easy. My mom just, put her head down and never stopped, but most of her family didn't. And we didn't meet them ever. And we didn't know they existed until I was almost in my thirties. So you just gotta, you just gotta look at things, meet people where they're at and understand 
you may not have the answer, but I'm willing to sit here and try to figure it out if you want. Yeah, no, that's excellent point. And especially uh, about your mom too, like meeting uh, her side of the family and stuff. I do want to talk to you about that though. How was it, you know, getting to, to meet uh, parts of her family when you were in your I only 30? met one. I only met one. It was my brother mm -hmm. that she was forced to give up. I met him when I was 26 and we're good friends. And he has three kids. So I have two nephews and a niece and he has a wonderful wife. Denise. So yeah, I mean, I didn't know he existed until I was 26 and it's because adoptions came open in the city of Tennessee. I thought my mom was sick. She came over and was just a wreck. And she's like, I got to tell you something. I'm like, you're a saint. Like, thank you. Like, but you didn't do anything wrong. You're forced to give a child up. But what are you sad about? And she's like, I think I'm just shamed. I feel guilty. So you 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 can't always it's like poker man you in life you can't really pick the cards you're dealt but you can always decide how you play them mm -hmm. and there's a lot yeah, of people I, really good at poker has um has your brother ever watched like been to one of your games and watched you play and stuff yeah yeah him and his and his family so that was that was really neat i have two brothers two half brothers my dad's side mm -hmm. mom's side so oh that's awesome Mm -hmm. Hey, better late than never to meet them, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I do want to get into like Tennessee, the you growing up in Tennessee, again, playing baseball at Middle Tennessee with Brian Carroll as well. Um, how was it playing for Middle Tennessee and playing in your state and, you know, maybe staying closer to home? I loved it. Um, the recruiting process stunk, but everything else I love. Steve Peterson was a wonderful man. He passed away in 2020, um, had a massive heart attack. But yeah, the, the the lessons learned there and the relationships created. I just moved out of Murfreesboro. I moved back there when I was playing in 13, stayed there until 2022 when we moved here in November. So um, now we call Pittsburgh home. But yeah, I mean, that's how much I thought of it. I moved away from my hometown in Knoxville, moved to Murfreesboro. And I really think it, you know, had a huge part of the man I am and the person I am, especially with the relationships I created, my wife created. I mean, I met my wife there at 19. We're still together, almost 40. So yeah, there's a lot of good that came out of middle Tennessee and baseball was one of them. Mm -hmm. Growing up in Tennessee though, too, I do want to ask, uh, were you a Vanderbilt or Tennessee kind of guy or did no. you not like, Nope. Mm -mm. Did get for you there? Nope. No, Vanderbilt mm -hmm. wasn't Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt became Vanderbilt when Coach Corbin got there. I was a Coach Corbin guy. I wanted to go to Clemson. Mm -hmm. Coach Corbin left. Clemson died for me. Mm -hmm. um, because we had a similar personality, and he was recruiting me. And then here's how crazy it was back in the day. Jack Leggett called me. He was the head coach there and didn't know what position I played. I was the name on a list that Corbin left. And then Corbin called me from Vanderbilt and said, hey, I can't get you in. Your uh, ACT score is not high enough. Had great grades. Had a couple learning disabilities. Didn't take tests well and didn't want to have the cheat codes that they give you when you have those disabilities. So I didn't make a good score. Couldn't get in. And he didn't have the loopholes he has now, which is kind of incredible that the NCA allows private schools or semi-private schools to have so many loopholes comparative to public schools and regular schools. So that helps them a lot. But if you have them, use them. So, yeah, I wasn't a 
I was in love with either. I was love in middle Tennessee. I played there my freshman year. I wanted to go there and luckily it worked out, but I had to fight for that. I, I called him. I texted him. I did not text him. I blackberried him or Nokia. I guess it would have been there in, in high school. So yeah, I, I'm a big believer. You don't wait on things to happen. You make things happen. And my wife says my greatest gift is I can take down any resistance with my persistence because I will be persistent. I do want to ask you. I do want to ask you though. So like, was baseball always like the sport you wanted to get into or, or did you have interest elsewhere? I mean, I thought it was Michael Jordan for a long time, but I'm five, nine, <laughs> I'm five, nine, man. Uh, <laughs> And I was told I was going to be 6'3". So I want to find that doctor. I, I, I doubt he's still alive unless he's like 180. But, <laughs> yeah, I love basketball. And, you know, I think God kind of moved me out of it in a weird way because I played my freshman year. I wasn't going to play. But the freshman coach, uh, Coach Smith, he, he had a little Smith in him. He always said it like that. But uh, his dad actually coached Michael Jordan um, from the same hometown. Big, lanky, uh, black guy that could still dunk, but wore these giant spectacle glasses. Like he couldn't see anything, but man, he could absolutely play. And I came for fun and I would play like pickup games in the morning at 530 with the guys that were going to be on the basketball team. And then I just didn't show up for tryouts because I was just going to focus on baseball. I knew that, you know, I was fully grown at 12. So let's just be honest. I wasn't going to grow anymore. It's 14 or 15. And he came and pulled me out of class. He said, I want you on the team. You're just ahead of someone that would actually fill, fill up the water bottle. And because he said that, I said, I'm in. He goes, see you tomorrow. I showed up every day. I was on the practice squad until the first game. I started, never turned back. Showed up for my sophomore year, made the varsity. And he told me I couldn't catch bullpens. It wasn't Coach Smith. If it was, I would have stayed. I would literally fight and call for anything for that man. I loved him to death. But the head coach wouldn't let me catch bullpens in the afternoon. So I never showed up again. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So I, mm -hmm. I, I knew, I knew what I could do. I knew what was right. I, I wasn't going to be able, my parents weren't going to be able to send me to college, you know, on their own dime. I was going to have to take out a loan if, if anything. So I was going to get a scholarship. Like I knew I had that in me and I knew I was going to. So, I set my mind to that and just moved away from basketball. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I do want to ask yeah, that. Speaking I, did, of I did like playing goalie and I wanted to punt. There's the other two things. But in Tennessee, soccer overlapped. And then I went to punt for the football team and kick. And they lined me up with the linebackers on the list on the wall. And I didn't even show up. I walked to it, saw it, and left. Coach asked me, hey. Where were you? I'm like, what do you mean? You, I wasn't there. He's like, yeah, your name was on the list with the linebackers. I was like, exactly. I wasn't there. <laughs> like, that's not <laughs> what I what I wanted to do. I wanted to try to get a dual scholarship at a, at a where I could maybe kick or maybe punt because I was probably going to go to a mid major or, or whatever. But you know, that's a great way because I was a goalie and I had a decent leg. I figured, why not? I have some friends that are pretty good at it in the Colquitts. They were willing to dive into it with me and teach me. So I was going to do it. And then uh -uh. you mentioned the cool quits though. I mean, they were both punters for a long time. Four I, of them. I know. Four of them. <laughs> oh yeah. Of them. Yeah. 
there's there's yeah. there's a lot of. I remember the one from the Browns though, because um, I went to went up to Cleveland to watch one of their games once when the homes went up there Britain? in a second year. But how's your relationship with them? You're talking about Britain, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Britain was was my age. I played against them in soccer. Played against them in basketball. So just that competitive nature. And then Dustin was my best friend's brother's age. So I had enough kind of run into's with those guys to, to get to know them well. And then also Britain dated one of my best friends in high school. So got to know him a little bit better then. So we just, you know, talked and whatnot. And, you know, that competitive nature you, you always seek out. I think when you're really competitive, other competitive people to, you know, whether it's pick up basketball or whatever, to make sure that, you know, you're trying to raise your standards consistently. The next question to you is, um, I do want to like kind of like shift towards this point too, because we do want to. We're interested too, and now you're broadcasting too. So you have you've had a life of you know being an athlete and playing. How was it going from playing to transitioning into a broadcasting role? Terrifying, mm-hmm. uh, but gratifying. I like I told you guys, I had two learning disabilities. Both of them had to do with audio perception disorder and. Uh, the way I, I see words, a little bit of dyslexia, you'd say too. But so I fought that my entire life. So I didn't want to talk in front of people. I wasn't good at articulating my thoughts, writing down my thoughts, spelling. I got mixed up in my head. I went too fast. So the f- mere irony of me being where I'm at is kind of funny, to be honest. Uh, my wife pushed me to do it during a dark time when I hurt myself in 13 with the pirates. One of the media guys came up to me, Robbie Spikowski said, Hey, Teak's going to be gone for 10 days. You want to fill in for a day? And I was like, Oh, ah, mm, <laughs> let me see if I can. I'm going to, going to see if I can make sure I'm good to go. And I got it cleared by the person that matters. That's my wife. Right. Not cleared. She was like, yeah, you got to do it. Take the opportunity. Let's go. So went in on my crutches did one game and then they asked me to do nine more. And when the team came back, I came, I went up to the booth, did a little bit there. And the rest is kind of history because in 17, Teak was going to retire. They called and said, we want you to come in and interview when you're done playing. We understand you may not be done playing, but just come in and interview. We're going to see and kind of, kind of play it out. I'm not saying anything else. I was like, Oh, okay. So you're saying I'm washed up. I got it. I got it. I'll, I'll be there. I guess. So I went in, they gave me six months to decide whether I want to retire after they gave me the job. So that was incredible grace. And, you know, the rest is kind of history. I, I, I made the decision to, to walk away from the game as the right decision, but it was very hard to do. Fair enough. So, like, talk to me about, like, you, know, you do the pre and post game and you might do some play by play, but just talk to me about the preparation that, that goes within doing that because obviously – you know, people have this, oh, you just show up, you just start talking. and But, no, there's a lot more to that. Can you just kind of talk to me about, like, what you do to prepare for, like, a pregame, postgame show or even a play-by-play uh, position? So it depends on who you're working with. So you have to learn your teammates. And then the goal is to help everyone succeed. So when I first got to AT&T, I asked everyone I could about what they did and how they did it and tried to learn the processes. So I understood how to make what I was saying easier. Cause I have to articulate to my producer, what Magnus force is and how we can show it to a fan and explain it to a fan within 32 seconds. Cause I'm the one talking about something that probably should take about 10 minutes and some 
math class or physics class at some college, it takes three weeks. So there's so many elements now in the game that I have to find that balance. And that was very, very hard to build that understanding. And then it's learning everything around you. The more you can learn and the more you can fail, the better. But the preparation really begins with like watching, learning, and asking more questions than you're asked as an analyst. So too often as an analyst, you're constantly asking questions. But the thing that helps me the most is getting as much perspective from everyone I can because that puts off a spark or a light in my brain to look in places maybe I wouldn't normally. So I get stuff from fans. I get stuff from front office. My wife's incredible at it. And then I watch a little bit of what others do, but not in baseball. I love the TNT with NBA. I, I see what other sports are doing because baseball falls into, you know, kind of the same old, same old sometimes. And now that I've gotten really into to media and stuff, like I built a little studio at my house. I I've gotten into the technical side, the audio side, still awful at it, but I'm learning. And that's made me better and better and better. So like there's certain times where as a pre and post game analyst or in the broadcast, everything goes wrong. I make a joke every single time. They should call it the, the mess, <laughs> the messed up cast. Cause every day a monitor goes down, your mic goes down. Uh, we've had blackouts. I've done a whole show with absolutely no VO. So we're, we're telling you the highlights. You see it. We don't think about how hard that would be. I've done segments where it's completely off memory. Um, so you just kind of adapt and, and you learn and you got to love how to adapt. And then you also have to have really good conversation with the people around you because if you don't have a good relationship with the people around you, it's not good stuff. So there's a lot of prep. There's a lot of different ways to go about it. I like learning other people's prep, learning the processes, and that helps me understand how to be a better teammate, which makes a better product. And that's at the end of the day, all that matters for the fans. Yeah. And I do want to ask now too, like speaking of having good people around, I have you, one more thing that I yeah. say. I never forget how hard the game is. So I make it a point to hit. I make it a point to throw. I don't do it as, as much as I'd like. I hit, I throw, I'll catch bullpens. I'll face somebody. If they ask me to, I'll do anything I can to, to get a perspective that I couldn't get as a media person in someone's mind. And I tell that to every person that wants to be in broadcast, go stand in and see how hard it is to see. Be like, man, could I hit this? Like play catch, ask to be around kids, go to camps, be in the game that you're, in, that, that you're a part of. And if you're not, terrible. And then also show up, show up, show up. And what I mean by that is show up. Where? I don't care. Just show up. And that'll take you straight to the top. Consistency wins. Yeah, the game certainly is hard, too. Like, just, there was this one player I played with who played for LSU named Trent Fitmeyer, and he was on my high school team. Oh, and I had to get a, uh, it is a very cool name, but he threw 94 miles per hour. And I just remember just being, like, your average sophomore, just seeing the pitch go in, and I was like, I cannot imagine having to deal with this every game, but on top of that, 
Like, you got people throwing upper 90s and some of the, the breaks and the switches, like, people have on their curveballs and stuff and all that, and just, like, the change of speeds. Oh, it's just crazy. That That's awesome you still do that, though, and still get in just to get that feel again. I think you have to, as long as you can. <laughs> no, that, that's what's – it's so wild because, like, uh, GameCast, like, broadcast nowadays, they'll show you, like, the, like the, like the VR view – the batter's box and i still don't think he does it justice obviously but like just like looking it at that, it's actually hard that that win reality is harder than at, at points for me when i was trying it i thought it was harder than actually hitting <laughs> i did i was like i'd rather just go face chapman this this is too hard <laughs> Maybe i'm not a video game guy but i was like come on like this is this isn't fun because like the major league side they have every single guy right and i'm just like this is too hard yeah, I mean, pe- people kill me with that. Like, I'll argue with people like on Twitter. I'm like, oh, well, I can get three hits off this guy. I'm like, yeah, uh, good luck. Good luck. Well, I'll tell you what. Next time they do it, say, hey, there's a thing called eye pitch. Make sure you do not allow them to use foam baseballs. They have to use real baseballs, and they have to use a wooden bat. And they either have to get that bat donated because they want big league wood. Trust me. They want big league wood. <laughs> so, one, they have to use major league baseballs. I pitch, no foam balls. Remember that. And they have to bring their bat and then let them try because the eye pitch will do the same shape, same spin, same velocity as anybody in the league. And you can set it up to their extension and the release and everything else. So let them try. And, and people don't realize too, like going from aluminum bat to wood bat is such a big difference. Like grip wise and the ball doesn't travel as far. It's tougher to get around. Like people don't realize. To be honest, to be honest I think if they use wooden bats early on, I think most players would choose a wooden bat. The feel of it is better when it hits your bat and you hit it good or bad. It gives you an instant feedback. It's a different animal. I loved it. You loved it. Yeah. Yeah. And too, when you, you- foul the ball off, it smells like a campfire. Mm-hmm. So you, you like, oh man, I want some marshmallows. Speaking of broken bats, though, have you ever seen the video of um, Sabo from the Reds back in I think the eighties or nineties? He had a, he sheared his bat in half, and there was his um his thing was corked. His bat was corked. Have you ever seen them look at that video? Uh, I have. It's been a long time. I I think that's nuts. And you know that's something going back to the catcher thing. I, I took a couple of broken bats and it cut my arm, all kinds of stuff. Yeah, it's it's crazy. They changed, I think, after my first year or right around my first year, the bats just kept getting better. They changed a lot of the standards. So guys couldn't have really, really thin handles. They have to be a certain thickness because no matter what, I don't care how good you are, when you have that much, I don't know if it's called reverb or vibration, You know, if you watch it in slow-mo, it bends. Well, those bats that are really skinny with a big barrel, they would bend, but they would also vibrate more. And eventually that thing's going to go, he gone. Barrel or no barrel, period. Have you ever had like a ball where you hit though, where you barreled it? Like, have you ever had like in the MLB, like a best moment of where you barreled a ball or like a, or was there any pitchers that you just hit better than other pitchers? Matt Grinky, loved him. Loved hitting off of him. Yep. Um, I say that because he came up to me uh, in LA one time. He goes, how do you hit me? Nothing else. Not hello. Not how you doing? Just straight Zach Grinky style. How do you, how do you hit me? 
bro, we're against each other. I'm not telling you nothing. And honestly, I have no clue. <laughs> he hated that answer. You know, I was like, yeah, man, like I just see it. Well, I have no idea how to tell you. I take your change up every time. No clue. Right. Cause right on right change ups, everyone else, I was swinging as it was coming out of the hand. Him is like, Oh, change up again. Nope. And then he threw me at so breaking ball. I'd be like, Oh, slow curveball. Double. It was weird. I think I hit like 400 off of him. Some line drives. I think he finally struck me out in uh, spring training one year. And he, he looked at me. I was walking off the whole time and then just winked at me. <laughs> just a great dude. Weird. That, that, yeah. That sounds like a, a Zach Grinty story. Just based yeah. off everything else I've heard about him. It's like, you don't, you don't know. Now it'd be a lot different. Like I could probably like pick out a handful of guys that I would probably want to go hit against now. Yeah. So, and because the analytics are so good, you can look at numbers. There's so many trends. I would completely change everything I did on maybe my approach at the plate. Ev almost everything. But I'd have to trust it, which is very, very hard. That's probably the one thing nobody talks about enough is like, if you don't have enough time, you can't trust it. And a lot of times you're fighting for your life. There's very few people that have a guaranteed job in the major leagues. So you're fighting and you have to be allowed to make mistakes. And that's not normally what they want you to do, right? They want you yeah. to succeed pretty quickly. So, yeah, if I had time, I would, I would love to test that theory. Well, you opened that can of worms, so I have to ask you. Uh, you can give me three pitchers. You can give me a pitcher. It doesn't matter. Who would you want to face right now? Because there's a lot of good pitchers right now. It's mm, a great – I'd want to face Spencer Strider. I don't think I could hit him, but I, I want to see it. Um, I honestly, I wouldn't want to face the guys that I think I could hit. I'd want to face all the guys I don't think like are normal, right? I, I'd want to face the tough of the tough. I'd want to face Verlander and see him again and see the change he made and see if I can see it. Uh, I'd love to face DeGrom again and see if it looks the same as it did. Um, just probably more of that. And then the elite bullpen arms, give me them all. Like, can I make them one pitcher? I know you said three, but like, no, that'd be I'm gonna, that's fine. I want to yeah. face all the dudes that do something elite and say, okay, how does that thing break 17 inches? Let's see them. And literally, just if, if I was hitting against them, I would pray I wouldn't swing, but I'd probably break my back in half trying. <laughs> like Bugs Bunny. <laughs> yeah, because that's more intriguing to me. Is like I, I would rather fail and learn than succeed and be happy about it like I, I think that would be a blast yeah speaking of that have you ever had like a moment where someone got you so good on on a pitch where you're like dang like this sucks like a on like a, a moment how about <laughs> many moments, <laughs> moments. Come on, man. <laughs> hey it's baseball i mean the league average right now is like 240 so it happens to a lot of people that's, right that's little, like yeah right now i think last year was 231 it's the lowest yeah in recent history yeah like game's hard so that happened a lot but I'll, I'll never forget like there there was times where before there was um the the strike zone and everybody could see it at home that like certain veteran guys just got more of the plate and that was demoralizing as, as a rookie. It's like I struck out four times my very first start and I didn't strike out on a strike the first three at bats. So what did I do in my fourth at bat? I swung at anything that was moving 
was like, I'm going to strike out if I get two strikes. So yeah, that was probably the hardest part. And then after that, it just depends on the day. I mean, there's times where like, I remember I had to pitch it against, uh, Blake, try train, try on training. I always get it wrong. I have Friday. Yeah. That was unfair. Wade Davis threw me the three best pitches of his life. That was unfair. I faced Kershaw. Love facing him because I tried not to swing, and I would usually walk. Once I figured that out, I think I had three walks in a row, and then he struck me out on the three best two, two, two breaking balls and one slider. I had no shot. I should have just stayed in the dugout and watched it from the side. There's times where that just happens. They're just that much better than you. You know, Porcello threw a sinker. I swear it started in the dugout and came out of the dugout and then came over the plate somehow. I mean, that's how good these guys can be at times. Like, I didn't know that was possible. See you later. Good job. Bye-bye. I do want to ask you about that. Always be a good hitter. (laughs) I do want to ask you about that, though. So, like, your mindset when you were at the plate. So, you know, viewers that watch on TV, like, we're not inside the head of a player. So, like, you know, you're up 3-0 on getting the count. You're, it's full count, 3-2, 0-2, like whatever. Like, like how, do you, how does your mindset or approach change when you're at the bat, at bat? So when I played or how it should have been with perspective now? If you want to give me both or one or the other, I, I, you know, I think both would be, you know, valuable. So I tried to keep it as simple as possible, and that evolved over time. So at first, I, I'm – I'm looking for a heater and I'm going to adjust. And then you learn that I want to see the sinker up, slider up. And then it's like, oh, I need the slider to start at me. I need that breaking ball to, you know, start at my shoulders, depending on the break. And then the change up, you pray that it's up and you swung at it right. Cause a lot of times you can't see it. And then the game keeps evolving. So like, then you see change ups going down and in from righties that you never saw. You see backdoor sinkers that you never saw. You see a front hit hip cutter because they're adapting constantly to you. And the one thing I, I regret more than anything is finding my, my comparables. Like me and Andrew McCutcheon are similar in stature, right? He's 5'10", I'm 5'9". We have a very similar swing path to, to the areas we hit the ball. If I would have watched him, I hit sixth a lot of times as the pirate or seventh. I could have watched how they pitched him. They were going to pitch me similar. I never thought about that until I got you know, into Colorado. So I was way past that, and then I didn't have him there. But because I was a backup other catcher and he was an MVP, my brain couldn't go there. No one else is good. But if, maybe if I got enough at bats and I understood my strengths and the confidence and blah, 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 I could have been at least power-wise somewhere in there. I could have never hit for the same average, could have never had the speed, could have never had the athletic ability. But I had that power in me, bat speed, everything else. But I never looked at it. I didn't know it. So all that sh- would shift, Right. If you guys were talking about Marte, I would look at my comparables. I would look at what that guy has, and I'd look for my win, period. So there was guys I would never, ever hit unless it was luck. And I would say, I can't hit this guy. Let's go one for four, one for three, or 0 for three today. If I can get two walks, over two is awesome, and I win the day. I would bunt more. I would look at who's hitting well behind me or in front of me constantly to see how they'd pitch. I would make sure to see the spin on the day, something I learned a lot, and then I would take the approach accordingly. And now I would look at the end zone rating because about 90% of the time, 0-2 pitches with a lot of guys, it's, it's out of the zone. So I can actually say my OO approach would work 0-2. So exact opposite of what – I wouldn't go to a two-strike approach there. But there's times I wish I went 
to a two-strike approach from the get-go. And there's definitely the number one thing I would do is I would swing at the first pitch every time it was in my area. I used to take way too much. I walked, I walked quite a bit. I had pop that got me in trouble. But if I would have swung at the first pitch more often, I think I could have dramatically been a better hitter. But it's all those things that's perspective. You just didn't know. Like I didn't know that until I was in Tampa Bay that I was in a 90 plus percentile on hard contact, hard hit percentage, uh, con- uh, contact in zone. Like I didn't swing and miss when the ball was in zone. So I had all these good tangibles now that I got to go back and break myself down that could have made me a way better player, way different player. And I would have owned it. But I love that I didn't know it because I wouldn't be who I am now and be able to help others the way I can if I did. Because a lot of times when you just have it figured out, it's really hard to see it for other people. But I'm willing to look any direction to help anybody if I can. And that comes from my perspective first or my reality first, excuse me. Yeah, I do want to ask too now. We were just talking about, you know, how you get ready and stuff for that, for the pitches and stuff. like. I do want to ask, so like when you're in the box, uh, Marte, for example, had a short, stri- short, short stride, long stance, like a long open stance. How, how, when did you feel most comfortable in the box? Did you feel like more comfortable with like a shorter stride or how'd you approach that? Uh, when I didn't know was my best. Mm-hmm. And I say that because most of the time when I was going really well, I call it sex appeal. Mm-hmm. And I started to have more rhythm, more movement, and the trust and the confidence was rising. So my leg would lift higher and I'd have a bigger stride. I'd usually a little bit more narrow. But my my comfort is my most athletic position, which is a little bit wider, um, maybe just outside of my shoulders, a little bit open, and being able to feel – tension on my back hip like inner uh abductor groin area little parts of that when i could feel that pressure i knew i was in a good place and i usually knew i was going to have a good day um from the get-go i mean that's how precise it gets i think when you really start to understand yourself especially when you've had a couple surgeries and you really have to understand that you know the way you walk can throw your hips out of line and put you in a bad place so that doesn't allow you to rotate the right way. So you start to learn a lot more about yourself and, you know, make adjustments need be. But once again, the, the regret for me is not, a, not entertaining where I was at. So in 2015, I had a torn meniscus in spring training. I wasn't going to fix it until I had surgery. So I kept getting my knee drained and everything else. 14, I had a great year offensively. 15, I fell off the map because I couldn't feel when I was on my backside because I didn't understand what that felt like maybe. So I was loading into my quad because my knee was wobbly and not into my glute. And therefore I was jumpy at everything. I, I was swinging at the rosin bag and everything. It was wild. And then I figured that out and you know, the next year and had to fight, fight my way back to the big leagues, got there and got one at bat. So it's just one of those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, you know, just kind of like, uh, Justin, do you have another question to ask real quick? Uh, honestly, I mean, I really don't. I mean, I, I know it's, it's, yeah, we, it's we, we, we got to gotta jump off here in a minute. I got to work out in a dinner. So, oh, yeah. Well, yeah. Jump I mean, off yeah. In a minute. So, yeah, just, yeah. yeah I don't so have any more questions. We, we, we go. I, I could go all day. 
But like, yeah. it's always good. Like if you guys want to do it again sometime, I know you guys are young and trying to get into this, this realm. I'm happy to do it when I can. And I appreciate you guys adapting to me today because, you know, it, it's sometimes tough to fit stuff in. I get so busy. So yeah, just keep going. We've got a couple more and then we'll bounce off. Awesome. Yeah. I think that's a good bending point then to that. Yeah. I mean, if you want to ask one more question, I, I'm not going to, I don't want to take any more uh, of your time away. So. Oh, you're good. You're good. Go one more. Then we'll, then, then we'll move on. All right, Tony. Yeah. Uh, my last question, just to kind of wrap up, what's advice that you may have heard at any time in your life that you'd give to, you know, someone maybe playing baseball or just maybe someone in life in general? <clears throat> Man, he didn't tell me he was going to go that deep. <laughs> last question. Man. I'll just finish off strong, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm in the Dead Sea right now. Isn't that the deeper sea? Um, I didn't hear this from anyone. Brene Brown made it famous, but I would say lean into your vulnerability. It'll lead you to places you could never imagine. Don't be afraid to fall on your face because your face may need it. You know what I mean? Like, and what I mean is sometimes we don't look at the scars we have. We don't look at the problems we have. We don't look at the life that we have led up to that point. And some of those things you cannot control, but they've affected you. And I hate the term control what you can control without the statement of, and be ready to be pissed off, be ready to, be angry and mad and frustrated at all those things you couldn't control because of standards that weren't high enough or understandings that weren't had or lies that were told. So just be vulnerable now, be transparent now, first with yourself and then with others, and you'll get that back eventually. And then the last thing would be treat everybody with the utmost respect as Jesus would have treated you as the guy that was right next to him on the cross. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Michael McHenry, longtime MLB catcher, current analyst at ATT Sportsnet for the Pirates. Check him out throughout the baseball season. Um, that was our podcast. You can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. Just search the Resident Store Podcast. Um, Tony, uh, great doing the podcast with you as always. And uh, Michael, I uh, appreciate you hopping on. Uh, really appreciate it. Yeah, thank, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. It was fun.